Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, the election season as a Rorschach test. Remember the Rorschach tests? You look at an inkblot and tell the tester what you see, such as a dragon, an angel, or a Big Mac. This tells the tester about your psyche. Well, this year's primary has been a collective Rorschach test. Unless you've been meditating in the Himalayas, you're aware that the electoral season is upon us and you've been having a reaction. Most of us have been talking about the candidates and their shenanigans. But now let's turn the spotlight on us. And our shenanigans. And our shenanigans, yes. Has this primary season, A, given you a headache, B, made you laugh out loud, C, caused you to hide under the covers, D, dragged you out of bed and turned you into an activist, E, all or none of the above. On this show, we're going to take a look at our reactions and what those reactions say about us. Once we do, let's see if we want to alter our response. So stay tuned, hop on the phone, and join the gang as we take a look at the electoral, I'm sorry, the electoral primaries as a Rorschach test. Be prepared to laugh, and now, here's Beth. Hi, welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. Well, we have today our uh, delightful co-host, Christine Benton, who is Yay. going to be <laughs> helping out here. And But before we go on to the very exciting news of the Interrevolution... Uh, I want to uh, remind everybody, this is allergy season, and so you may be hearing some snippets <laughs> on the air. <laughs> I think we just heard some. Anyway, <laughs> moving right along, I don't know who sniffed that time. But I really do have other things to say before we get on to the very exciting news. First of all, thank you, all of you out there, for your incredible support. Our Facebook page, uh, Beth Green and the Interrevolution, has now topped... 2,000 likes. We have 2,012 likes the last time I looked. We also have over 2,000 subscribers to our YouTube channel, Beth Green TV on YouTube. And we have some very exciting news. Um, You know, we've been syndicated now on Pacifica Network. We broadcast live from Voice America. Uh, dot com variety channel and we also have podcasts there but we have been picked up by three affiliates in the past on Pacifica which is just this wonderful um, group of like-minded radio stations and uh, we had Washington State, New York and Alaska we've had some stations and now we discover we have been picked up in Ames, Iowa Welcome, everybody from Ames. I can't wait. And not only that, I'm going to be interviewed at our regular broadcast. This this is terrestrial radio so that people, you know, actually hear it live or they're out of luck. But although, I don't know, they may also have podcasts. I'm not sure. But anyway, so they're going to be interviewing me May 6th in Ames. And I'm so excited. They're, They're doing a fundraiser. And they actually think I'm going to help raise funds. Can you imagine that? <laughs> I, I, I I'm sure they they will be recording podcasts, Beth. A lot of radio shows do, and we'll make sure to put a copy of that on our Facebook page. So if people have not already gone to facebook.com forward slash the inner rev, um, do so and hit like, and we'll make sure that they have access to that. Yeah, to that interview. I love it. I'm going to sit back and be interviewed. 
So yeah. I like that. I don't have to worry about the cues. They do. That's the important thing. Okay. So those are the little news bits before the really important news bits that James is going to give us, the news of the inner revolution for the week. And here we go. We have a bunch of exciting stories for you today. While we're still dithering away about reducing the prison population, here's a positive story regarding a breakthrough in prison that has to do with treating prisoners as though they were human. Compassion and common sense work together and seem to be winning out for a change. The story was reported in the Daily Good, April the 20th. The title of the article is Prison Gardens, Food for Body and Soul. Some states are discovering the value of feeding prisoners nutrient-rich food grown with their own hands. Prison vegetable gardens, where inmates plant and harvest fresh produce to feed the larger prison population, are on the rise in correctional facilities from New York to Oregon. In addition to being a cost-effective food source, the gardens are seen as a way to save money on health care for prisoners struggling with diabetes, hypertension, and other ailments. But the gardening may not only help with costs of health care and inmate health, it also provides opportunities for personal growth as inmates learn how to plant, raise, and harvest crops. Love it. Also on the topic of food, there's an increasing awareness of the relationship between animal agriculture and global warming. A couple of months ago, we interviewed Keegan Kuhn, co-director of Cowspiracy, the film that blew the story wide open. Now we see more support for the idea of eating less meat. This story is from The Guardian, March the 21st. Research led by the Oxford Martin School finds widespread adoption of vegetarian diet would cut food-related emissions by 63% and make people healthier, too. Livestock rearing is a major cause of greenhouse gases, in part because of the methane produced by the animals. A widespread switch to vegetarianism would cut emissions by nearly two-thirds. We personally have gone semi-vegetarian ourselves as a result of our cowspiracy interview. For health reasons, we can't go totally vegetarian, but our eating habits have changed a lot and we feel good about it. Now on to another story which combines compassion and common sense, food health, and the whole person. But this time in relation to schools, and it shows the influence of one dedicated administrator. I almost said another prison situation. You know, that crossed my mind. (laughs) (laughs) It felt that way when we were kids, didn't it? Well, but not always, thank God. Okay, carry on, carry on. This is reported by NPR, January 3rd. We often hear about school districts that struggle with high poverty, low test scores, and budget problems. But one district has faced all of these and achieved remarkable results. In just over three years, Superintendent Tiffany Anderson, who oversees the Jennings School District in Jennings, a small city just outside of St. Louis, has led a dramatic turnaround in one of the worst performing systems in Missouri. Anderson has embraced a holistic approach to solving the problems of low-performing students by focusing on poverty above all else and using the tools of the school district to alleviate the barriers poverty creates. Instead of complaining that all the problems are dumped on the school system, the superintendent uses the position of the schools to help the kids. The school district of 3,000 students has taken unprecedented steps, like opening a food pantry to give away food, a shelter, shelter for homeless students, and a health clinic. That unconventional approach has had big results. When Anderson took over in 2012, the school district was close to losing accreditation. 
Now there's a 92% four-year graduation rate and a 100% college and career placement rate. We think this is critical, a critically important story and hope to follow up with more in the future. We sure do because, you know, this is more about treating people as people instead of punishing people for their poverty or their disabilities. It's just, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but it may be obvious, but it doesn't mean we're doing it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're aware that there's a new movement afoot. Here's a story from Roar Magazine, April the 16th. This story shows the rising of new consciousness in our world and is coming from the grassroots. Now, I've never heard of this before, so we hope that this is true. Carry yeah. on. Yeah. We hope you've heard of it, yes. No, Para- we hope that it's true. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh really? Yeah. Well, well uh, there are thousands and thousands of people who are part of this movement, so here we go. Paris is an example of a growing grassroots democratic movement overflowing the streets and squares of Paris. People speaking and hearing one another in assembly after assembly. Growing in number, geography, and diversity. The movement first began with high school students rebelling against the police killing of a student. Then moved to mass resistance to a potential rollback of long-held labor protections. It spread to people speaking in squares, trying to occupy them at night, being repressed and coming back the next day and the next and the next. Thousands gather every evening with circles of people standing and sitting, talking under cardboard signs to identify the theme of their discussion, including groups on economics, education, facilitation, feminism, housing, and ecology. High school students march in together, chanting and singing behind sheets painted with their school names. The reporter said that by assembly time, there are always... There are almost always medical, well, there are always medical, legal, media, library, and kitchen areas. And somehow, as with every occupation, there's a meditation circle a few meters from the drummers. (laughs) This is not a protest. People here are creating something different. They are speaking to one another, insisting on real democracy, meaning face-to-face discussions about their own lives and things that matter most to them. And when and if they do come up with demands, it will have been out of these sorts of discussions together. There are now dozens of squares holding assemblies nightly in France alone. Many more dozens of similarly organized movements are springing up in other parts of Europe and Canada. This sounds downright subversive. (laughs) (laughs) So this reminds me of our program of Unleashing the Power of Kids. Yeah. Discussing the issues. And look what's happening. The adults are catching on. (laughs) Something something different happens when taking place in assemblies with others, listening to what strangers have to say, and taking care of one another. Wow, this is mutual support in action, and it really challenges the hierarchy. Showing more awakening consciousness, the Washington Post reported March 28th in a new survey that more than three-quarters of Americans identified alcohol as a serious problem in their community. That's higher than the percentage who named any other drug. Politicians keep focusing on drugs, but what about the most pervasive addiction, the one to alcohol? At the end of today's show, we're going to tell you about what Interrevolutionary Radio intends to do about that. But now, for our last story of the day, there's news of a political revolution taking place right before our eyes in America. This story is from the Washington Post, April the 14th. Some of you may not know that the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., has no rights to vote or to vote in the U.S. Congress. 
That is taxation without representation, isn't it? Well, there's a movement afoot to change that. The District of Columbia is fighting Congress to control its own budget. When the district sends its $13 billion budget to Congress this year, for the first time, the district will not ask the federal government for permission to spend its money. Instead, it will use local tax dollars as it sees fit, just as 50 states do. There is one problem. Congress treats the district as a federal agency, no different from the way it funds the Department of Labor or the Interior. And Congress has warned that an insurrection by the city would violate the Constitution. This budget battle is part of the district's effort to become the 51st state, and self-determination and politics are surely involved. Conservative members of Congress have routinely overturned laws passed by liberal D.C. lawmakers to score points with constituents at home. They have frozen funding for abortion coverage for low-income women, blocked money for a needle exchange program, and even kept the city from counting ballots cast by residents who voted to legalize medical marijuana. The looming budget battle suggests that frustration in the district with the status quo has reached a level unseen since the civil rights era of the 1960s. And speaking of civil rights, the population of D.C. is more than 50% non-white. A coincidence? Beth? <laughs> well, isn't this wild? I mean, we live in a wild world. We, we have to, I, I tell you, we have to drop so many phenomenal stories or we would have the entire hour filled with news of the inner revolution. And by the way, just to remind those of you uh, who uh, may not remember, or to advise those of you who are new to our show, by the inner revolution, we mean a movement of consciousness towards oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And we see this happening in so many ways. Uh, that is so exciting. But I have to add one more thing, because this is everything is political, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I, I've got to tell you this. Are, are you sitting down, everybody? Well, I love this story. In the eyes of the British government, the U.S. the U.S. may now be a risky destination for LGBT uh, travelers. Mm. The British Foreign Office. This is true. I just found this in the news just before our show, and I thought, oh my God, I got to share this. The British Foreign Office posted a travel advisory update to its website Tuesday warning members of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender communities about anti-LGBT laws passed recently in North Carolina and Mississippi. And it says, the U.S. is an extremely diverse society and attitudes towards LGBT people differ hugely across the country, the advisory reads. LGBT travelers may be affected by legislation recently passed in the states of North Carolina and Mississippi. Now, you're going to love this. The advisory also provides a map that marks countries around the world, see, that also have anti-LGBT laws. And so I thought you might want to know how that plays out, where we stand in relationship to these advanced civilization countries. (laughs) Turkmenistan, Pakistan, Nicaragua, as well as much of North Africa and the Middle East. Doesn't that warm your heart? to know that we have finally made it. So, uh, oh my gosh. Yeah, I know. So, <coughs> see, I said it was allergy season. I'm not sniffing, but I may 
cough to death. Okay. Oh, my God. We are in the middle of an election season, and elections count, as we can see. I mean, there is a battle going on on this planet, and that's no joke. I mean, and we say in our campaign, uh, we have this on our Facebook page, uh, the innerrevolution.org. Um, you know, we say that it's uh, really a battle between those who believe in oneness and those who don't. And it's about oneness versus separation. And you see so many of our stories today. All right, well, how we treat the prison population, how we treat, you know, kids, um, how we treat people with different sexual orientations, how we treat... Uh, different ethnic groups and racial groups and how we treat our own people in the District of Columbia. Are we inclusive? Are we one? Or are we not? And that's the battle. And we can see it happening in on every level of society. And so there is a lot of revolution in the air and there's a lot of counter-revolution in the air. And I'm not talking about Republicans and Democrats. I'm talking about oneness and separation consciousness. What gets um, really interesting, though, is when all the folks who believe in oneness separate from those who don't. Oh, that <laughs> is very, very challenging. And see, that's a perfect segue, Christine, into our topic uh, today about the election because it is so difficult not to go into separation consciousness yep. when it comes to the election. So today we're going to talk about how we feel. You know, every month or so I have to give you an update uh, of some kind about the electoral madness. And now we're going to be looking at ourselves. Now, I'm going to start out with an, an, an admission of how do I feel about the election. You want to ask me, Christine, how do you feel, Beth? Beth, how do you feel about the election? Ugh. <laughs> Okay, sometimes I find it exciting. Most of the time, it gives me a headache. I feel despair. I feel angry. I'm rooting for my guy, but then I don't like what my guy says. Um, I, uh, you know, I get angry, and then I go into my uh, supremely spiritual serenity zen mode. Um, and, you know, and I say, okay, I'm fine, God's will, whatever you say, you know, and be in the oneness, but I want to be in the oneness with everybody, and I keep finding myself, and I hold, I did an entire video on this, and some blogging about uh, the elections as a blood sport, so, oh, I, I can't remember, I think we may have done a radio show on it, too, but, um, you know, I see it, it's not getting any better, people are like, Comparing statistics, you listen to the news when there's been some a primary vote. And it's like, yay, six love, 30, you know, tw 122 to 116. You know, these numbers, you think we weren't <laughs> talking about real things. There is still a lot of kind of, you know, game uh, mentality, sports mentality going on here. And I find it very, very difficult to take a breath and... Um, and stay neutral, because I do not feel neutral. I want to be neutral and non-judgmental towards the people. I want to be compassionate. But I'm also very appalled by some of the political stances that some of our candidates um, have promoted. That could cause a lot of damage and a lot of hurt to a lot of people, and that makes me very sad. And by the way, the latest joke is that Donald Trump is now coming across as the kinder 
gentle <laughs> Donald Trump. But I just read that he says, oh, I love waterboarding. I, I wonder if he would love it if it was being oh done to him. And this despite the fact, I mean, this is a, a CIA torture treatment that even the CIA said doesn't work and mm. is against international law because it's torture. But we have yeah. a presidential candidate who can say, I love waterboarding. I love waterboarding in the winter. I love waterboarding in the fall. Anyway, what can I say? Well, what what we can say is we have a caller already. Are you oh, ready? I am I ready? Sure, That's ready. Good. I think people are responding to this topic. Um, good. I hope so. Uh, and, and by the way, should I give out the phone number for anybody who yeah, doesn't? Yeah. Yeah. Go How about for it. That? Okay, our number here is 866-472-5788. So please call us with a question or comment to 866-472-5788. Perfect. And so we have our first caller is Helen from California. Yay, Helen. Yay. Yay. I need help because I, you said that you get enraged or you go into the Zen mode. It's like I... I get crazy and so full of opinions about things that I don't really know. Uh, you know, so full of opinions and so full of emotion, whether I'm scared or angry or enamored of one candidate or whatever it is, I, I am not logical. And then if, if I get out of that, I go to apathy. And it's like, who cares? It's all going to be the same mess anyway. You know, I'll vote for the party that I always vote for. And, you know, the guy that I've been contributing to isn't going to get the candidacy. So, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I bet that's a lot of people. I, I bet you speak for a lot of people, Helen. I bet I do, too. But it's not, you know, I was just thinking... I can't wait until my Facebook page is full of something other than politics. You know, when the election is over and it's like, oh, my God. Yes, or you could put it this way, full of electoral politics, because in a way, it's all political. Exactly. what is so horrifying is, for example, we had that story. I don't, I don't know if you were able to listen uh, to the news today. Yes, but, yes. Okay, so that story about Washington, D.C. Here, these Congress people are playing to their home audience. It's totally political, and they're making decisions for a population that is hostage to their politicking in their own state. I mean, that's politics at its worst. I cannot, it's horrifying. Yeah, I can't imagine why we allow this. But, you know, there's so many things in our nation, in our world. Well, it's just that's the way it is. It's just done. And it's so good to see that Washington, D.C. is fighting back. But there's an example of how political our world is. If you're... Uh, looking at, um, you know, issues of global warming, what have we discovered is that, you know, these Exxon, in fact, I read recently that Exxon and some of these other companies were getting sued and that it was being allowed by the courts to sue them because they actually had knowledge about global warming that they were hiding, which, of course, they are still denying. But that's coming at, that is political. 
political not in the sense of being elected to a government office. It's political in the sense that everybody is politicking for themselves. We are all politicking for our self-interest. It's it's so terrifying. It's just, it's hard to know. I mean, I know being an inter-revolutionary is about doing what we can do. And yes. I'm, certain, I'm certainly dedicated to taking what action I can, but when you have a topic like this, you know, I, I can't help but give voice to the part of me that feels discouraged, and I consider myself to be a relatively intelligent and evolved <laughs> conscious person, relatively, but, yes. you know, it, it's, it, it's just appalling my own reactions. My own reactions yes. are appalling. Yes, I I agree with you. But what's really appalling is how few of the political discussions are substantive, and are really seriously taking a look at the impact of the some of the positions that people are taking, and that makes me mad too, Helen. But oh, you me have a. Too. I think you have a question because it isn't just about. Okay, I have a lot of opinions, and I do. I admit this. But it's also that there is very little real inquiry. And that is frightening, too, because when you have policies that impact millions of people, and there's very little discussion or inquiry or understanding, that that is just makes me... Sh- just shrink inside because I think of all the needless suffering that is going to happen. And I think that for some of us, that anger that you're talking about, and this is really the my answer to the question that you didn't quite ask, but I'm <laughs> going to answer it anyway, is that sometimes we're angry because we've become identified with a certain candidate and our egos are associated with that candidacy. I like this position, these are my friends, oh, I'm a feminist, so therefore I have to believe this or whatever. But that kind of anger, we really need to stop ourselves because that's egoic. That's, oh, I don't feel like I'm winning. Oh, I'm not winning. Or uh, my friends aren't getting supported. That anger, we really need to stop. But there is another kind of anger about the fact that we don't do deep inquiry into anything much in our society. Being, I, and I see that what the wonderful reality that there is more and more people in the news media because there's so much social media as well as corporate media who are bringing out things that people have not known about before and are demanding more and more conversation. But even those of us who are involved in that kind of media can be jumping on the opinion bandwagon, just like you were saying, Helen. And so we have to stop all of this, take a breath and confront that We don't think. We're not trained to think. We don't examine. And we're not interested in what actually works. Getting past our sloganeering and examining what does work and what doesn't work. And that would be so refreshing. So that's my answer to the question that you didn't quite ask. I have a follow-up question. 
on that. Yes, Beth. Um, and I know we have a couple more callers, too, so I want to get to them. But Yes. Um, so what it sounds like you're talking about is, you know, really taking greater responsibility with our vote and looking how it'll impact the whole. And was that the original intention, you think, of democracy? Because my thinking is that, well, if everyone votes from their perspective with their interests, then then the whole will be represented in some way. But there, that's not so. And that's very good that you asked that question. I think that one of the reasons that we have... The Senate, as well as the House of Rep- uh, House of I was going to say the House of Republicans, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the House of Representatives, yeah. was to give uh, you know different ways of coming to our consensus that are not only representational of one person, one vote, but I think that that someone needs to be looking at. The whole, and that's why we have a judiciary. Oh, that's why we supposedly have a president. And so, I think the real move into true democracy would be for every one of us to be taking into consideration the whole, which is to take into consideration how this is going to impact not just my interests but the interests of everyone else. That's where we are sadly lacking. And so, I'm not just talking about how we vote, Christine. I'm talking about how we think and how we even approach the electoral process. Are we using this as an opportunity to think through our priorities and to look at the things that we've done and whether they have worked or they haven't? Mm-hmm. Good. I like it. Thank you. Um, thanks for taking yeah, thank my you. call. Thanks, thanks Helen. Helen, for joining us and jumping right in. We, Our next caller we have is Chris in Vista. Vista, California, in case people didn't know where Vista was. <laughs> right. <laughs> Especially our friends in Alaska and Amy That's Iowa. right. Right. <laughs> and Palo Alto. We see we have a lot of listeners in Palo Alto and in the Bay Area. Yay! Yay! Bay Area. Yes. Yeah. Yay. I'm Southern California, but we are inter- intellectual down here, too. Just saying. Oh. <laughs> Um, what a great show. You know, just following on Helen's comments, I've noticed that I really am lapsing into that mode of I want my candidate to win and drawing stuff in my mind um, about my views and the other candidates' views. And I can feel it um, uh, reducing my ability to have any rational discourse. So I did hear what you said to Helen. I'm wondering... How do we take this? You know, how do we take the the good points that Bernie Sanders is bringing up, and even the good points that that Donald Trump is bringing up? He has some good points, and you know, how do we take it and and bring it out into a conversation that people generally can engage in with us? Like I know in the interim, we want to start by changing everything, but we can't necessarily expect that everyone else wants to have that same level of dialogue. Well, I think that any topic you bring up, the way you frame it can influence the conversation. Now, for instance, let's say we put out a Facebook post on religious liberty, civil rights, and abortion, which we did. Now, there are people who are writing in and answering us and making comments on the Facebook post who have clearly not read the article. 
So no matter how brilliantly or deeply or profoundly I framed the issue, there is no discussion on the issue because they have just taken the topic to mouth off on their opinions. That is not dialogue, and that really irks me, I have to say. Of course, when I'm in my Zen mode, I say, ah, yes, om. But when I'm not, I feel like, oh, my God, it's just the issue that you're talking about, Chris. But when you're in a face-to-face conversation with someone, I will then say, um, okay, uh, but that you're not addressing my question. And if we keep insisting on the conversation... Why do we always have to have a conversation about the candidates? Why don't we start talking about the issues? You can bring that up yourself in any conversation, but if we automatically tend to think in terms of political partisan type politics, that was very PPPP, then we are losing the opportunity (laughs) to start talking about substance. But that means, of course, that we have to educate ourselves about what that substance is. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's much right. more challenging. Yeah, I mean, we, right. we can come up with as many statistics as we want about how many delegates that are needed to win. And that's what is, you know, talked about. But, mm, you, right. you know, and that's nothing. You find that in a news snippet. In fact, Christine did that for us today. But what about... The substance, it takes much more research, much more thought. We have to know what's being discussed, but we also have to even go beyond what the candidates themselves are saying and talk about things that are meaningful. I just want to add one thing, tying back to the inner revolution, that it does feel like a place to start is to ask each other to connect to each other as human beings. Yes. Because it changes... You know, how we feel in our hearts and how we think when we see each other as, you know, real life, warm bodies with a heart and blood. Yes, that's so true. That was what was so great about that story about the emerging democratic conversations happening around the world. That these are real people talking to real people. That's so true, Chris. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Bye, everyone. Yeah, thanks for calling, Chris. All right, um, we, our next caller is Lizzie from San Diego. Welcome. Well, I don't know if it's a question or just a reaction of some of the conversation, and I'm sure this is ego, but it's like uh, in regards to talking about it as, you know, with other people, or like when you talk about, okay, if I have a candidate that I want to support or this movement that I want to support, the understanding, the importance of looking at how it's going to impact the whole my ego is just like, I don't want to look at that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm somebody who works on doing this inner, inner work, just, you know, to become an inner revolutionary to try and make a difference in the world. And it's like, if I'm having this reaction, how do I deal with it and how do I help others deal with that? Well, I'd like to make a comment about that. But before we do, James, can you give us the, um, the phone number again? Uh, yeah. 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Thank you. You know what I'd like to say about that, Lizzie? It is bec- I want to go back to a comment that I made a little bit earlier, and I want to reinforce it. You said, if I have a candidate that I'm supporting, isn't that kind of the way you started it? And I get that. But that's the problem. We think about politics as candidates that we are supporting 
rather than national conversations about issues that are going to impact everybody. And we're not talking about them from the perspective of what is the impact. For example, when I see people saying, you know, abortion, like Ted Cruz is against abortion in every case, except I believe in the case of, uh, if, you know, the mother could die. Rape, insane, it doesn't matter to him, of course. I don't think he's been pregnant lately. But I don't think that Ted Cruz is actually thinking about what it was like in the old days when abortion was illegal to have to go to a bar room to get an abortion because people are going to get pregnant and there are going to be abortions. And he's not thinking about the emotional impact. He's not thinking about the financial impact. Uh, He's not thinking about the impact on the children when they're born. He's not thinking about when the child is born to a mother who's using drugs or alcohol or smoking and what kind of limitations did that put on that child? He's not thinking about the suffering. He's got an idea in his head. Now, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt now that he really believes this, which I doubt. But even if he did, I understand that's a perspective. But, you know, how much conversation has he had with other people and himself about what it would be the impact on real live people. I've been reading recently about you know the tremendous burden that that these anti-abortion laws have put on poor women around the globe. And it's about poor women. See? So I don't want to talk about Ted Cruz. I want to talk about abortion. I want to talk about the fact that it is a it, we are killing a being and I want to talk about when does that clump of cells rights supersede the rights of the woman and when does the woman's rights supersede the rights of the clump of cells when does that being become a person i really want to talk about that but no we're talking about donald trump and ted cruz we are acting like this is i don't know what are the popularity show or i don't know the american idol or something i think that's a show where they vote for i don't know singers yes yes i yeah So it's like the first thing we have to do is shift our thinking. We need to be talking about this every year, all year, all times in the year. We need to start making policy decisions and stop thinking about individuals. But we are so personality driven in our society that we focus on individuals as though it was the individual that was important, as opposed to the collective consciousness that's important. What does this person, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, whatever, remember Marco Rubio? He used to be running. Uh, What kind of consciousness do they represent? Do they represent any form of consciousness? What are the underlying issues? We don't do that. It's all like a horse race. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really good point, yeah. and I'm gl- I'm glad you mentioned the what consciousness they represent because you um, you do in some part are voting for uh, a person who is going to do a job day to day, make day to day decisions, and yes. may come across things that that we haven't discussed that may be unfolding or events that may happen that they have to respond to. But I get what you're saying about. We tend to think of it in terms of just the personality and only in times of election versus looking at all of the issues all of the time and, and, and seeing how 
they, you know, our decisions on them would impact everybody. Yeah. And of course, I don't mean to say that who becomes president is not important. Uh, of course, it's important. But yeah. that should be just a part of the whole conversation instead of the driving part of the, pers- of the conversation. Right. Right. It's good. Thanks for your question, Lizzie. It's good. Yeah, thanks for that Um, answer. I needed to hear that again. I I heard that before, but it's just hearing it again, it's helping that sink in more and just take it into another level. So thanks. Good. Good. Good, thanks. We have um, three callers, um, Beth, so I'm going to kind of try and keep it short. Um, Yeah, I'll ask them if they can keep it short, too. So um, next is Tracy in Phoenix. Hi, Tracy. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just wanting to comment, you know, you were asking about what's the reaction to the election, and I feel a lot of fear. You know, when you were talking about torture earlier and the fact that we're even having conversations saying it's okay and something that it's good to do, it just, like, I, I just feel myself, like, tense up and, and react to that. And I think that's what I've been doing kind of generally throughout the election is I feel probably something that's always there is people's anger, you know, and frustration about things that are real, but it's manifestation into blaming other people or wanting to, you know, even attack other people. Like, I just, I find it so challenging. I I try to put myself in their shoes and say, you know, they they probably do have something that they're really upset about, but the, like, even the way it comes out and how they react, I just, I don't even know what to do, and I just, I tend to feel myself more shutting down about it, so... I just wondered if you could comment about that. I love that you're acknowledging that, Tracy, because I'm I'm sure that for a lot of people, the reaction is fear. And fear typically makes us either shut down or get more violent and more aggressive. And so it's it's tricky, and I will just be very honest about that. There is a lot to fear. Um, Adolf Hitler was elected chancellor of uh, Germany I think it was 1933 on a plurality of votes, like 30-some-odd percent, or I don't remember it. You know, don't ever ask me for details. I never remember anything. But he was he was not elected by a majority, and look at the impact that that election had. Yet it also did represent a whole movement of consciousness in Germany at the time that really needed to be nipped in the bud, and he got swelling support. So this is not a joke. There is really good reason to be afraid, but fear, like any other aspect of our consciousness, needs to just become something that makes us aware. So instead of becoming just totally sanguine and act like there's nothing happening, if we feel fear, we need to ask ourselves why. What am I fearing really? And am I fearing a loss of my own status? Am I fearing that there's going to be changes in the government and the way we do things and the way that we distribute wealth in the way that we're taxed that's going to impact me personally? And if so, I need to look at that fear and say, yes, well, is it for the highest good of all? And um, really come to some new understanding realization. If your fear motivates you to ask the questions and go with the answers and then try to mobilize yourself and others to do the right thing, then that fear is a blessing for you. But if you stay stuck in the fear, you will, as I say, either probably uh, crawl up and go into a hole, do absolutely nothing, and or for some of us, it makes us more strident 
but that means that we're not in dialogue. So having the fear is not in and of itself a bad thing. It's what we do with it that counts. Oh, there's something Thank I'd like you. to add to that. I'd like to add this. Uh, if you can come together with other people, uh, this will tend to diminish the fear. When you True. feel the support and the strength of a collective of people, uh, the fear tends to diminish. You feel the solidity, the strength, the power of a group of people. So maybe that would be helpful to you. That is very helpful. I mean, that's part of mobilizing. Thank you. Okay. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Tracy. Um, Next up, we have Todd calling from San Diego, California. Well, that was really good what you just said to Tracy. I think I've been feeling fear also. You know, um, this is really an interesting election, and there's so many different directions or questions I could ask, so I'm not even sure where to go. The thing that's been on my mind is, you know, what this is bringing up about the democratic process itself. Um, And I think it's good that it's highlighting the the gaps in our electoral process, like uh, the primaries um, and independent voters who are now the majority. You know, there are more people registered independent than Democrats or Republicans. Yet that is not you know they're not with what they're they, because they're not open primaries in every state they're not necessarily getting to express their uh um you know their wishes or what they're seeing yeah so well that's a very interesting point Todd and I'd like to say just a few words on that okay um the issue of the of the of seeing the weaknesses in our democracy that is fabulous isn't it you yeah. know, we're we're looking at uh, po- the role of money in politics. I think it's never been more spoken. And thank God that Bernie Sanders has brought so many issues to the fore, even though I don't agree with everything he does. He yeah. certainly has brought up a lot of stuff and forced other people to talk about them. And I think, you know, Donald Trump has done some, some kinds of similar things in the Republican Party. Uh, but... I think that the flaws in our democracy are something that we should take a serious look at, and I'm hoping that that doesn't go away at the end of this electional uh, debacle. But, yeah. but in terms of the independence, you know, I can really understand why any party would not want independence voting in their primary. It's like if you if you were at home in your house. And you and your wife and kids were getting together and say, what color should we paint the walls? And you have to agree among yourselves, are they, the walls going to be purple or are they going to be brown? Well, I would go for purple, obviously. But anyway, um, yeah. we yeah, have to live, yeah, you know, we have to live that in that house. Further. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And, but yeah, I'm also it, what it makes it difficult audience. is in the fall, then you don't really have an accurate representation of where the where the republic, you know, the, where the constituents are going to be. You well, get a much accurate, because, more accurate picture if those people got included in the process. Then you would know, okay, what's likely to shake out in the right, general see, election. That, where right that now we're really, like, yeah, yeah. Well, that re- that really brings up an issue about the party system, whether the yeah. party system works. I mean, if all the independents got together and became a third party, they would have to come up with an agreement about what they would agree with. And, you know, they would want it if the Republicans or the Democrats came in and decided who theirs should be. That's true. That's true. Yeah. You know, know, the truth is that when the independents are able to vote in a primary and they're supporting somebody I like, I think it's great. Yeah. 
Because I'm in my ego place of wanting my own guy to win or my own woman to win. and yeah. uh, But it really brings up a whole issue about the electoral system as a whole. And I think that's what we should be looking at is yeah. should we be really aiming for a third party? When we've had things like the Green Party, they've been very clear, but they got uh, George W. Bush elected, according to some people. So right. it's all very tricky, isn't it? So I'm glad you raised that question, but I want to say to see that's a very deep, question. And when we're looking at it in a partisan way, we may tend to say, well, gee, the independents should vote. But if the independents would be voting against the guy that you like, you'd say, well, what the hell is the independents vote? They don't have to live in that house. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, no, I totally with you. And politics, is, they're with fellas. where we are with the you know, ability for, with technology for everyone's voice to be heard, it's, it's shocking to me when I look at the election, you know, primary election results and see how few people voted even compared to how many Democrats were registered. You know, it's like, wow. So anyway, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, let you, I'll leave with that. I know there are other callers, and I don't want to dominate the time. Thank you. I loved your question. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Bye. Todd. All right, and we have coming up Irene in Fallbrook. Hey, Irene. Hi, Beth and James and Christine. Um, I've, I've been trying to approach it from a different way because... I notice I can get so behind a candidate that in conversations with people, it's more separating than connecting. But what I've found is helpful is when uh, someone, when I'm talking to someone, I'm not trying to convince them to think my way, but I'm asking them why they think what they're thinking. And it creates a different conversation because it fits it to the policies. And then you can, you know, keep asking questions rather than my, my impulse is to hammer them with my facts. And, uh, you know, obviously it doesn't work. That's a very good point, Irene. And that's, you know, you're making a, a real uh, call for us to get into real conversation with each other, try to understand each other, and have conversations about issues, again, instead of about candidates. So I very yeah. much appreciate your call. You know, I'd like to just add something before, because we're coming up into the wrap-up time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christine went to the trouble of getting me some statistics. Um, on the latest delegate count. And I want to share something with you because one other piece that we haven't even discussed today is the role of the media in this whole thing. I mean, the media is also a huge part of uh, how we perceive what's going on in the election. For example, in the Republican nomination, it takes 1,237 delegates to win. Donald Trump has 844 and Ted Cruz has 543. They are separated by 301 delegates at the moment. Now, I'm not counting, I guess this does not count the superdelegates. Now, in the Democratic Convention, it takes 2,383 delegates to win. So it's twice as many, right? Hillary Clinton has 1,446 actual voted-in delegates, and Bernie Sanders has 1,200. The difference between... Hillary and Bernie's is 246. And that's out of a much 
greater number. So in terms of the delegates that have been won through the primary and caucus process, there's a much smaller difference between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders than there is between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. Now, do you know that? Is that what the impression is? You wouldn't know it from, yeah, from media. You would not know that. So I just wanted to say, now I understand about the superdelegates and the superdelegates are primarily supporting Hillary Clinton. However, they could change their minds and I'm not recommending that they do or saying they should. I'm just pointing out how the reporting is so skewed. So we have a horse race where the reporters are constantly giving inaccurate uh, their own impressions because whether it's because they've been bought off or simply because of their unconscious bias, that that is the case. And it's something that we need to also take into consideration that we are also having our emotions thrown about by uh, the media that's telling us things which we have to go into the inquiry and find out is this true? Yeah. So I mean, I you don't have a horse race, right? If you don't, if you're, they're not neck and neck. If the, if the one horse is like five lengths, horse lengths behind the other one, you know, right. it's right. not exciting, but that is more of what it looks like in the Republican um, uh, side than the Democratic. So, well, I think it's simply that the, uh, the media is more comfortable with Hillary Clinton than they are with Bernie Sanders. So, uh, anyway, that's how it looks to me. But yes, I mean, imagine listening to a horse race where the reporters are not mentioning that this candidate is almost neck and neck with the other right. one in this race. As yeah. food for thought. So, I know we're going to have to move forward. So let's go on to what we're doing next week, and then we can come back and wrap this up for now. Okay, then. Coming up next week, denial, destruction, and death. Let's confront our use of alcohol and why we pretend it's the okay drug. Alcohol has blood on its hands. Its role in U.S. history includes the slave trade and organized crime. It's implicated in over half the incarcerations in the U.S., especially violent crimes. Child abuse, domestic violence, loss of work, drunk driving are its daily results. It damages our health and leads to 88,000 deaths a year. Kids nab some from the family cupboard and become hopelessly addicted. Anybody with a couple of bucks can buy it. Tons of money is spent trying to free ourselves from it. Millions of lives are ruined as wage earners become dysfunctional and parents become angry, violent, and incompetent. There is treatment for alcoholism and we have improved our awareness around drunk driving. But alcohol itself remains not only legal and available, but the sacred cow of drugs. Doctors even recommend it. Why? What makes it the okay drug? Race? Class? Money? We're not recommending prohibition, but let's take on alcohol. Why we give it a pass and what we're paying for our denial. And now for a final word. I can't Mm. wait to get into this topic. I cannot wait. How many of us have been impacted by alcohol? And either ourselves or a parent or a relative or a child or a spouse. And it's, it's huge. And here's another example of how perceptions are manipulated. How we're always seeing these awful stories 
about, oh, phenytoin and this and that and heroin. is Not to say that I think that those are great things. But why is it that we're deaf, blunt, dumb, and blind when it comes to alcohol? I am ecstatic about that news article that we put out today, that Americans get it, even though it doesn't seem that way. If you look at the way the news comes out, you would never know that alcohol was the number one drug in America, would you? So I love it. I can't wait to get into it. I hope you're going to join us. And I also hope that you keep supporting Interrevolutionary Radio by passing on our shows. We always Post them on Facebook so you can share them with your friends. And please uh, let other people know about Interrevolutionary Radio. There's a lot. And the one, Beth, where you'll be live streamed, um, where you'll be interviewed, that will be live streamed. So we'll put that up on our Facebook page, just letting people know. So they can listen. You don't have to be from Ames, Iowa. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Love to all of you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.